Welcome to Live Well with Depression, a podcast about unlocking your best life while managing depression. I'm your host, Amanda Gist, and if you're tuning in because you're ready to design a life well lived despite mental health challenges, you're in the right place. Ready to reimagine what a life with depression looks like? Keep listening. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Live Well with Depression. I am your host, Amanda Gist, and I am so excited about our guest today. Uh, Joelle Miletus is a CEO and clinical supervisor. She's a trauma therapist, and I have been looking forward to this conversation for so long. Thank you so much for being here, Joelle. Well, thanks so much, Amanda. Me too. I know we've been bouncing back and forth on, on Instagram and <laughs> different questions, and so I'm excited to have the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited too. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Just give listeners kind of an insight into, into your experience. Sure. So I am a trauma expert. I have a clinic in California that's centered in California in the Silicon Valley Bay area, mm-hmm. closer to San Francisco. Um, but we are uh, internationally, so to speak, we do everything from therapy to coaching. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I have expertise in trauma. I have a a clinical PhD that I um, write and teach under. And anyway, so long story short, lots and lots and lots of school. And it tells you I can read a lot. Um, (laughs) What else it tells you, but at least that, but I'm a retired dancer. So I was a ballerina for 22 years and and a dancer in multiple modalities on film and commercials and um, had career-ending injuries and went back to school and became a therapist. Oh, wow. That is, that's, I didn't, I don't think, no, that's not true. I did know that about you because I've seen your posts with like the, the point shoes and, and all of that. Oh, that's incredible. Do you feel like it's kind of a second life going from ballet dancing to therapy? Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, it was one of those things where I, I think, you know, if it, for those of you that can't see us on, on camera, right. Or just listening to this hand on the forehead, right. (laughs) Dramatic, like, life is over. I'm never going to find anything I love as much. And it it's funny that I, I ended up loving this profession, I think as much as I did dancing. Mm. Although like I haven't embodied that yet, you know, even mm-hmm. though it's been many, many years, I've, I've had a practice since 2008. There are moments where I wake up and I'm, I'm still a dancer. So it's funny how that transition, right. Yeah. With the identity hasn't necessarily changed, but the love for what I get to do now is, is really cool. And I feel very blessed. Oh my gosh. That could be a whole nother conversation. I had an acting career. I lived in LA and had an acting career for a very long time. And it was very much like, in fact, that was the catalyst to my depressive episode as I moved home for health. I was deep in bulimia, super depressed and finally moved home to get help. And it was like, who am I now? Yeah. Where do I even start? What is my purpose? And again, and also I'm never going to find anything. I was meant to do that. Like, right. oh, it's, it's a big transition. Um, so this is my opening question for every guest. I would love to hear about how you were first introduced to the concept of depression, media, friends and family, your personal experience. Where did that come from for you? Yeah, I think it was always humming in the background, um, you know, through gener- my own familial generations and generational trauma. I think me as a teenager, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's colored in all of the other things, right? And so I don't think that I really sat down and said, oh, I'm like, I'm clinically depressed until my life was blowing up. You know, my career was, and I, like you, I had career ending injuries. Um, I had a one-year-old, not even, they were barely one in three. My husband, you know, and I were divorcing. I was in the throes of trauma. Like it was sort of this all encompassing, a lot of shame, grief, a lot of trauma, a lot of guilt and postpartum depression that had been untreated. And so I think for me, it was, actually really doing therapy for the first time and 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 fully engaging not arms crossed I don't want to be here um where it was like oh I I get this like it's not just baby blues oh it's not because I'm a moody quote end quote teenager mm-hmm. that you know my parents are front right whatever would call me it's it's 
you know, um, I'm not being over dramatic. Like there's a serious issue here. Um, and, and this is what it looks like. And so in some ways it was really going to therapy. So I felt like I knew about it, but it was one of those things. Well, oh, that's not me. I'm getting up and going to work. Oh, that's not me. I can take care of the baby. Oh, that's not me because, you know, I have an amazing career as a dancer. Oh, that's not like it was always, oh, that's not me though, because I'm not in bed completely dysfunctional. Right. right? right. And, and in reality, no, it was very much me. Yeah. You know, it was highly functioning. I was just going to say, would you refer to it as highly, highly functional depression? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And, and what we use, you know, the DSM, which is the the Bible of diagnoses, right. Has changed. It, it, it changes over the years. And what mm-hmm. we used to call dystymic depression, I always like to refer to it as like being Eeyore kind of that just, just down in the dumps, meh, um, mm-hmm. low energy, kind of negative rain cloud over your head that is just chronic. It's always there. I think that described my depression more than um, I was good and then I wasn't good, right? Or I was suicidal and then I was good. I I was really more of this um, dystymic, low, you know, kind of just low mood. And then I'd have these bouts of energy and and I could turn it on because like you, when you're, you know, in, when you're in that Hollywood world, right? You you flip the switch and you're like, big smiles, big energy. Yep. I love everybody. I'm this extrovert. And then I'd go home and I'd crash. Yeah. Right? It sounds like that that Eeyore energy really just became your baseline. Yeah. For a long absolutely. time. Yeah. Um, so m- kind of, I am so excited to dig into the trauma part. I'm kind of fascinated with trauma. Um, just to start, what if you could give a brief overview just in like the everyday person's language of, of kind of what trauma is and, and how it can even manifest. Yeah. So, you know, clinically speaking, there's, we can divide it sometimes into two categories. So people have my, might have heard the term big T trauma versus little T trauma, Mm -hmm. big T trauma, meaning something that um, horrific has happened to me. It's my first person experience. I've been assaulted. Um, I was in a horrible car accident, a fire, like something hurt war, something horrific, little trauma being more um, what we would say relational trauma, maybe emotional abuse, growing up in an unstable home. Um, as, as we more know more about trauma and we're really learning about trauma as a science and the way that you know people react, I have moved away from this concept of big T trauma and little T trauma because trauma affects us all differently. And so mm-hmm. what may seem, you know, air quote, little to me as a clinician may be something that's extremely big to a client coming in, right? So I've really started to find traumas, traumas in the eyes of the beholder. It's something that happens to us where we have a whole systemic mind, body, spirit reaction where we are fearful, we're horrified, um, we maybe feel hopeless, we've, you know, apathetic, we've, um, lost that joie de vie, that, that, that love, right. Um, and that it's, it's caused us to look at our own life or look at the world from a different lens. And it's usually from a lens of fear, right? So for some people, the pandemic didn't affect them much. They worked remotely. They are introverts, right? They, they have a small group of people and, and not that it didn't affect them, but it didn't affect them to the level that they would say it was traumatic. For other people, it was extremely traumatic. So there's not an explanation for why that affects some people one way and other people another way. Yeah. So, you know, so for me and my work, if you think it's traumatic, it's trauma. You know, if your you body's know, onto it, it's trauma, right? You know, I just, I actually just saw something, it might have even been last night <clears throat> that really spoke to me, which was as, uh, as graceful as it's not, it um, it doesn't matter if you die in ten feet of water or the ocean. It you're you're still dead. It yeah. affected you the same way. Um, it, it is. Am I like making sense of the connection to like it? It because that was one of the things that I had a big had a lot of trouble with was like you know the the stereotypical thought of trauma is a soldier going to war, a house fire, those types of things. And, um, you know, I very much grew up 
feeling that, thinking that, knowing that, kind of having that imprinted, that conditioning. And when I first started approaching trauma in therapy, it was like, what do you mean I have trauma? That, you know, and um, what would you say to someone who's who's under that kind of that stigma, that impression that that even the just the word trauma is reserved for those significant events? Like, how would you kind of ease someone into that knowledge that um, just the educational perspective that it runs a spectrum? And I think there's very few of us that don't have some type of trauma. Exactly. So looking at it from that lens, right, it is, you know, if you were shamed by a teacher one time as a child and it gave you test anxiety, it's trauma. Mm-hmm. Does it impact your daily life and living as a grown up? Maybe not. Right. Maybe it doesn't impact your world much at all, but mm-hmm. it's something that you remember. Right. So so, you know, it could be something that we have experience with that really doesn't shape who we are. And then it could be something where, no, that one same experience, you know, you were shamed by a teacher publicly, right? And now you have a fear of public speaking and it's debilitating, right? And it impacts your every day, every time you have to get on a Zoom call or go to a business meeting, right? You you have a sort of a nervous stomach, right? Or you have feelings like you want to vomit or you get, you know, you start talking really fast and you have all of this, you know, physical attributes to it, then that experience was extremely traumatic and it affects you. So, you know, it's picking it apart and, and looking at, where do the things that I'm struggling with stem from? And and understanding that doing that on your own without therapy support, without, you know, um, any kind of support is not necessarily helpful. So like, this is not a, hey, go out there and do this on your own, folks, kind mm-hmm. of a conversation, right? Therapy is very important. Um, there's a socioeconomic luxury, and I say it that way intentionally, to going to therapy, there's self-help books, there's podcasts like yours, there's um, a ton of resources, there's NAMI, the, the, there, there's so much at our fingertips that we have access to. So, you know, my advice to people that are starting to look at what is trauma, do, do I have trauma, does it affect me, what does this mean for me, is go to an empirically-based informational website, someone like me who who is an expert, who was a trained expert, and you can get good information. There's so much out there mm-hmm. that is disinformation, right? Do not go mm-hmm. to TikTok and look up trauma. Like just <laughs> don't, don't do it. Just don't do it. I love that disclaimer. That could not be more true. Right. That could not be more true. Um I love that you encourage people to do this work with support. I Doing this work with support was absolutely game-changing for me. I did talk therapy for probably seven or eight years and had very, very little, if any, relief from my symptoms. When I started doing trauma work and somatic work, the entire world opened up. Um, And, you know, for a long time, all of those years of talk therapy, I really had convinced myself that this depression was 100% biological and I would just live with it for the rest of my life. And there, you know, was no, no fixing it. And so when I did start doing that trauma work, it was like, I, I'm finding relief. How is this even possible? I'm finding relief beyond the medications, beyond the other things that I had tried. Um, How, how would you say trauma can contribute to depression? Like, where is that connection between you know, me experiencing that severe level of depression for so long. And then once I start working on the trauma, it's like, it's go time. There is so much of an impact. So clearly that depression was somewhere rooted in the trauma that needed to be healed. Yeah. it It's, if you think about it as, um, three different circles, those overlapping circles, right? On one side is trauma and on the other side is depression and somewhere in the middle, they overlap. Mm -hmm. And so shame shame and guilt are the underlying explanation. So when we have trauma, even for for people that have had very serious trauma where they are victims, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of shame there. 
Mm-hmm. Right. How did I let this happen to me? Um, how come nobody was there to protect me? Now I'm, you know, I hear a lot of times people say I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm unfixable. Right. So this this shame that comes with trauma and depression is all about shame and anger turned inward. And instead of it being externalized at the world, we we internalize it and we point it at ourselves. And it's about, you know, shame, guilt, anger. Um, and and so that overlap of shame shows up on on both ends, right? It shows up in depression, it shows up in trauma. So when we have trauma and we have that shame, eventually what we learn is there's nothing we can do about it, mm-hmm. right? It, mm-hmm. It's just, it is, you know, our mind is going to tell us what it tells us. Our body feels what it feels and it just is. And that hopelessness can cause the depression. It's not, not the only cause, right? Like there's biochemical reasons, there's environmental reasons, there's all sorts of reasons. Absolutely. And a lot of times it's not one thing. It's a combination of, well, there may be a genetic predisposition for that. There may be a biochemistry issue for that. There may be something that kicked it off. Like for me, um, I think it was genetic and the postpartum depression like sent me into a spiral. So it could be something right. hormonal that um that isn't temporary, but it it does take a little bit longer to get back to a stable baseline, right? It could sure. be all different reasons. So just to give listeners an example, um, so that shame of this thing happened, this thing happened, I have no control, I didn't cause it, I can't control it, there's nothing I can do about it, becomes a weight. And that depression, that hopelessness, right? continues to spiral down. And so now we have this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. We're on a hamster wheel. We feel better. We start to feel ashamed. We get depressed. We feel better. We start to feel ashamed. We get depressed. And we're on that, that, that roller coaster, right? So when we're doing only depression work, and it like what you said is like you're doing really good work, but you're not feeling better or you're not getting better to where you want to be, right? Right. There's usually something deeper and you're like, oh, for me, it was trauma, right? Yeah. For other people, sometimes they'll start with a trauma work and they're like, I have this horrible thing that's happened and they don't realize that they're actually depressed. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they've been, I was a victim of this thing. It happened to me. And what we uncover is that depression piece, right? And what they're, where they're getting stuck is not just the trauma, but also the depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that overlap is something that um, is is also fascinating to me, and I've learned so much of this commingles, and and so much of it just it it they you know they feed each other, and they really, um, for lack of a better way to put it, the way I felt is it just created this giant mess, and it was mm-hmm. like where do I even start unraveling this? Um, and again, I didn't. I didn't really start feeling like I was moving the needle even emotionally until I started with somatic work. And I had been doing somatic work for quite some time before I had this experience where when I was living in LA, I used to um, drive back and forth home because I didn't fly because I needed to bring my dog with me. So I did a lot of driving and I went on uh, a little vacation to actually to the Bay Area, to Capitola a couple of years ago. And I was driving down the highway and the Los Angeles street sign was up there. And I, like, I started shaking and I started crying and I like, and I had to pull over. And it was my first experience of this is truly, there is truly a physical element to this. I felt completely out of control of it. I, and it was just, it was shocking to me. Um, I, from that point started doing a little bit more research. I've heard that trauma can be stored in our tissues. Um, I would love to hear more about how trauma is stored in our bodies and like how it gets stuck, how we move through that stuckness. Um, just that whole element, because I think that's still very much something that is not common knowledge is like these these emotional issues, these mood issues, these are very much physical as well. Yeah, it's insidious. I mean, it, it it's so if you look at 
at that. If anyone who's a driver out there, if you think about, you know, learning how to drive or even driving now, and you've got your hands on the wheel and you're minding your own business, singing your favorite, you know, singing your favorite Taylor Swift song, right? <laughs> you're at the stoplight and you're looking in your rearview mirror and you're watching a car scream up behind you and you're like, they're gonna hit me. If anyone has ever had that experience, right? Or next time it happens, pay attention to what your body does. You grip the wheel. So your hands clench, right? Your shoulders come up to your ears. Your whole body braces for impact. You start holding your breath Mm -hmm. because you're preparing for something horrific to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm great. I'm going to get hit. I'm going to get hurt. We go to this place of I'm going to die, even though that's not conscious or or sometimes logical, but that's what our brain is designed to do. That process is also biochemical and it kicks off our flight, fight, freeze mm-hmm. response. So we, you know, we're having this whole physical reaction. We're gripping the wheel. We're not breathing. We're going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? Shoulders are up in our ears and we're just watching. And usually your pupils are starting to dilate. Your body's flooding with over 30 different kinds of stress hormones and, and, and it is starting to upload into your brain. So it starts in your gut, believe it or not. Wow. That's where all this biochemical stuff happens. It's why we get nauseous or we have GI issues when we're depressed, anxious, fearful. Um, so all this junk, cortisol, adrenaline, testosterone, norepinephrine, it's all dumping into our system very rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then our brain is going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? Mm-hmm. So our brain is getting our body to react. Our body is getting our brain to react because now we're getting ready to do something. Do I sit and freeze and get hit? Do I get out of the car? Do I run the red light? And most of us are not cognizant of what we're actually thinking. We're just looking in the rearview mirror, waiting for impact. Mm-hmm. Okay. You don't get hit. doesn't happen. You kind of, you know, shake it off literally and, and, you know, roll your shoulders and breathe. And you're like, oh, thank God. And you, you probably, if it were me, I'm usually cussing at whoever <laughs> would get the car behind me. And I have some choice words and we go about our day and we may not think about it again. We may have a really crappy rest of the day because mm-hmm. now we're in a bad mood, right? Um, we may say like, you're texting a friend after you get out of the car, please. Um, oh my God, you're not going <laughs> to happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. Our body takes between 72 hours and two weeks to get rid of all of that a chemical reaction. Oh my gosh. So if it happens one time, chances are it's going to take you two to three days to reset. Mm-hmm. Right. And you kind of get back into the groove. You're not even thinking about it until you get in the car the next time and it happens again. And then we're like, oh, I remember this and our body starts to react and maybe it's a person that's gently coming up behind you, right? But it's only been a few days later and our body's reacting. And then a few weeks go by and it happens again and our body reacts, but not as much. And then a few months go by or maybe even a year goes by and it happens again and we might have a little bit of a reaction. So over time, we get desensitized to what's happening. Our body is still responding as if it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. First mm-hmm. initial scare. So if you have trauma, you are responding from that place of fight, flight, freeze. Anytime you're triggered. So the trigger is the car is, I'm looking in the review mirror, right? And I see a new car coming up behind me. That's the trigger. I start physically responding to it, Mm -hmm. right? Even though, like I said, they could be, you know, meandering along and it's perfectly fine. It's not the same situation, but I'm, my body is responding the same way. So that's how we hold trauma. So when we have something horrific happen to us, right? We're holding all of it in our body. Now, we may not be thinking about it anymore. Maybe we've done, you know, talk therapy is great. It has its place. We I do a lot of it in my clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the end all be all, right? So maybe we've talked it through and you're like, oh, I know exactly what my trauma is. I know how it affects me until you're triggered. Mm-hmm. And then your body's like, you know, it, it it completely reacts. And that, you know, danger, danger, danger goes off. You're back into that fight, flight, freeze mechanism. All of those chemicals dump, and it's that vicious cycle. 
So our body holds on to all of this experience. Wow. That explains so much. Like I knew that our body stores trauma. I didn't know the science behind it. And I think a lot of people listening probably are our jaws on the floor right now. Yeah. And, and so it, it's, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. So here's what, here's what sucks about it, right? Is if we didn't have that reaction, we may die mm-hmm. because it might be a situation that's life or death. If we didn't have that fight, flight, freeze mechanism, we wouldn't survive. All, an- all animals have it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's great. I mean, it works like, especially with the, <laughs> like potentially being rear ended, right. That example, like it works great. Mm-hmm. It works great for all of us. Right. That's a good thing. Yeah. So what's not a good thing when you're constantly reacting to, or your body's reacting to similar events, right. That aren't um, dangerous, right. Or not as dangerous or don't warrant a reaction. Mm-hmm. And so that's when it becomes a problem. So the depression piece with that is, okay, now I can't like, I, I don't know what's happening. I can't explain it. I can't control it. It keeps happening. And now I'm just like, what's the point? Why get hopelessness car- again? Uh, why go anywhere? You know, yeah. what, yeah. you know, every time I get in the car now I'm afraid I'm going to get hit. So I'm not, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to drive. Well, I don't drive, I can't, you know, see my friends or my family or go on vacation. Right. And it's that downward spiral. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I am just kind of speechless right now thinking about how the entire physical process that I just wasn't aware of. Like I said, I knew trauma stored in our body. I didn't know it is that to that degree that there are that many systems involved. Um, I, I have been, so for the last few months, I've been in this kind of low level sadness and I finally approached it with, with my psychiatrist and I have a traumatic event anniversary coming up. And his response was very interesting. He said that trauma can, can, our bodies can respond to trauma seasonally. Um, He said it can very much be a matter of like, you know, 10,000 years ago, did they have a calendar? Did they know that it was suddenly lion mating season and the lions were out more often? No, but they knew from season to season, their bodies would respond to, oh, it's lion mating season. Like I need to be more on guard or I need to do this. I need to do that. And, um, you know, he, he identified that this kind of low level sadness is a response to that upcoming anniversary before I ever did. And that seasonal piece is very interesting to me because I, you know, I hear in comments and DMs and things like that, I hear from a lot of people who are just like, um, I am feeling X, Y, and Z, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it can be your body remembering things that that maybe we consciously can't identify. Absolutely. Yeah. And and anniversaries anniversary dates are fundamentally significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we just, we're not tracking it, right? We're not consciously paying attention to it, especially for those people that it's either been a long time or they've already done a lot of work in therapy. Mm-hmm. Because we come from this place of, well, I've worked through it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, February, I don't know, make up a date, you know, February 10th comes and like, oh, that, you know, that, like that's coming. And um and you don't even realize it until it's too late, right? The, that's these are examples of triggers, right? We talked about the car car example as being a trigger, right? Mm-hmm. Anniversary dates are triggers. So with trauma, what's key is triggers. What makes it so difficult is most of us will never be ident- able to identify a hundred percent of the triggers because there's so much in our environment from all of our not not just sensory, right? Colors, sounds, smells, shapes, touch, all of that, but also our own internal dialogue and narrative of what's happening in our own head. Mm-hmm. Um, something horrific is happening to us. People check out. They they um, leave their body or you have an out-of-body experience that's, again, that's part of that fight, flight, freeze mechanism to help cape, people mm-hmm. say, right? So they may not remember all of the details. So um, you could be out in a mall, for example, and you're shopping and you're 
you're doing just fine. And there's a cologne, right? You walk by and and you're like, that's familiar. Like that smell is familiar. Um, And that's, and that's probably all the intellectual or or mental um, attention you give it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, like you said, you notice that you're just sad. Mm -hmm. You're Mm -hmm. sad and then you're sad for a few days or a few weeks. Right. And you cannot put your finger on it. You're like, like, I feel okay. I'm getting up. I'm doing my thing. I have stuff on the count. Like I have no idea why this has hit me, you know, and it's exactly that is there was this trigger that happened and our subconscious and our body is remembering. Right. Mm -hmm. But we don't have any, any conscious thought to it Mm -hmm. with with working with that, what makes it so difficult is there's a lot of different schools of thought when it comes to trauma work. For me, I like post-traumatic growth at the end. So once I've done a lot of work in, in this, like you said, somatic, we've done talk therapy, we've done skills-based therapy, we've done somatic work. Mm-hmm. As we're moving through that, I like post-traumatic growth sort of at the end of the or, or middle stage therapy work. And what that is, is there comes a point where there's no way for me to know what all the triggers are going to be. Now let's talk about my own trauma, sure. a, a very complex trauma and my own PTSD. And so um, there was a point in my work, because like you, I did talk therapy for years. Then I did all different kinds of somatic therapy. I did this before school, during school, after school. <laughs> I, still, I still go the same therapist I've had forever, literally. I love it. Love it. Um, you know, so... For me, it got to a point where um, being a victim felt awful. Mm-hmm. It felt like I'm giving my power away. So being a survivor felt so much better, right? There was less shame about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after a while, that felt awful. I'm like, yeah, but I'm still identifying with these things. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't feel good. And so there was this idea of radical acceptance and post-traumatic growth is it is what it is because it is. I'm the sum of all of my experiences, good, bad, and indifferent, right? I may not have caused it. I may, I'm, I can't control it. I certainly can't change it. And so what? Not so what, who cares? So what am I going to do about that? And for me, getting to that place of it's part of my narrative, but it's no longer me. I don't identify as a victim. I don't identify as a survivor. Doesn't and define you. Doesn't define me, right? So having to chase down every single trigger, which was really important to me in the beginning and not possible. There was mm-hmm. no way. Was too much trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, became less important and it was, okay, when I get triggered, I need to start recognizing what's going on in my body so I can get myself out of it instead of trying to figure out what triggered me and then avoiding that, right? Because mm-hmm. we use avoidance as a protection as well. We're like, oh, I'm not doing that again. I'm yep. not getting like, oh, yeah. you know, right. I'm not going to the mall again. <laughs> right? yep. Yeah, yeah. Okay. One of the things that like, as you're speaking about trauma and triggers, what, one of the things that is coming to my mind, which you kind of just addressed is if our body has this severe of a reaction to it, if our body has this heavy of a response to it, and there's a very unconscious level of maybe intellectually what what even triggered it, how do you ever, like, is there any fixing it? Like it, it almost, one of the things that came to mind for me was like, how do you ever, how do you ever deal with it? How do you ever fix it? How do you ever find a way to live this rich and fulfilling life? If you are constantly being, you know, experiencing triggers that maybe you can intellectually identify, maybe you can't, but your body's responding to them and it's responding to them in, in this severe way. Um, I like the idea of post-traumatic growth, which I haven't heard that term. So that is really interesting to me. And one of the other things I found that made a huge difference for me was EMDR. Um, and there's a specific event that I remember completely differently after after working on it with EMDR. And I can see where there are certain modalities that it's like you can learn to not control, but manage those responses better, those physical responses. And um, 
I think one of the ways, one of the ways that my psychiatrist measures my progress is my bounce back rate. How fast are you bouncing back from things? You know, how fast are you bouncing back from triggers? And that really reminds me a lot of what, what you were just talking about is it's like, it becomes less about how do I prevent this and more about how do I move forward? How do I continue living my life? Yeah. And that, that's the resilience key, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think when, when, like you first said, led into this question about that hopelessness, that's the depression talking, right? Mm-hmm. Is I'm never going to get out of this. I'm never going to get out. And, and I don't know, I'm not a believer. Let me just put it this way. And I, I may offend people. So forgive me. <laughs> I'm not a believer in that we get a hundred percent better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just, um, and, and from my, my research, you know, as, as a researcher, as a clinician doing, doing therapy for years now, um, and my own healing journey, um, I think we get 90% better, mm-hmm. right? And I think that there's always going to be moments in time where we have something that reminds us we have a body reaction or we just have a, a depression, just because maybe we have a hormone shift for me, uh, uh, you know, women have hormone changes every two to three years. For me, that affects me tremendously. Anytime I'm going through one of those, you know, I, I know that my PTSD is going to be a little bit more calibrated, higher. My depression might be, my anxiety might be, um, like that's just the way my body chemistry is. Mm -hmm. And so what do I need to be doing in those times? as opposed to, oh, here we go again. I'm not fixed. We have in this hustle culture that we have, right? And I'm a career perfectionist. I, I don't know if you resonate with this, but you know, when you work in front of the camp, right? I'm a career perfectionist. I'm really good at at, at pretending to be perfect. Nobody is ever perfect. I am never going to be perfect. I've had to learn to really detach from being, you know, striving for perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the beginning of my healing journey. Is well, how do I beat this? Mm, mm. I'm I'm gonna beat this, yeah. right? Like yeah. I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna do therapy and then I will be fine. Yeah, very much. And that's also that all or nothing thinking that that black and white, like yeah. So bounce back rate is a really I mean, I love the way you said that and the examples that you used. It's it's a perfect way for us to measure how bad our depression is. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we're depressed for a few days or a week after something that happens, we're triggered. There's a reminder. Maybe we're just sad. We watched a movie and it was just the perfect storm, full moon. We were talking about that earlier. <laughs> a perfect storm of a really long week, Friday afternoon, full moon. And you're just like, oh my God. <laughs> and your body feels heavy and your brain feels heavy. And it and maybe it takes a week to bounce back, mm-hmm. right? as opposed to being in a depressive episode where you're hitting that two week marker, which is um, diagnostically important Mm -hmm. for depression when you're hitting a two week marker and it's not lifting. And that's when it's like, okay, there's something that's going on here, right? right? So that we're looking at how do we focus on the present when we're too far in the, too far backward, we spiral when Mm -hmm. we're too, are forward. We're not paying attention, which puts pushes us even fo- farther into a, our depression. Mm-hmm. So remembering to breathe, getting back into the body, even though that's terrifying when our body's reacting, right? Yeah. Breathing helps us get back into our body, trying to stay present and saying, okay, what do I need to do right now? Not for my friend, for the kids. What do I need to do for myself right now in this moment? Is that get something cool to drink? Is it turn my phone off? Is it go outside for a walk? Is it play with the dog, right? Take a nap, take a shower, wash my face, right? Something tactile, sensory. What do I need to do right now, right? Take a breath and then action that. And then check in. Okay, how do I feel now? Do I need another 10 minutes? Am I good? What do I need? Right. And and it's this constant checking in helps us get that bounce back rate to happen much quicker. Yeah. You get stuck in the why am I triggered? Why am I triggered? Why am I triggered? 
we can never, we're just spinning, can't figure it out. It's not helpful. It's important for deep therapy work to understand trauma. But while we're at home when it's happening and my therapist is not on call at mm-hmm. midnight, Thursday, you know, yep, she, yep, absolutely. She will not answer my call. Right? <laughs> How dare she? <laughs> How dare she? I've been there for literally twenty years, um, off and on for literally twenty, years, right? Um, we have to have something, right, to get us get us back. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I I've kind of ad- adopted this from the addiction space, and it's very similar. It's like, what is the next right thing? I am constantly asking myself, what is the next right thing? Is it taking a walk? Is it, you know, just taking a, one of my go-tos has become taking a shower with those little shower steamers that are like eucalyptus, you know, just, um, that has very much become one of my go-tos is just what is the next right thing? What do I need right now? And this, you know, really gets into the whole premise of this podcast and the work I do, which is how to live well with depression. And, I think you really you really struck a chord with me when you talked about how you don't believe we get 100% better. Um I was recently having a conversation with one of my team members and and you know told her I there's a big part of me that believes I am as good as I'm going to get. And are there areas of my life that can improve and that would improve my quality of life? Yes. You know, and I'm constantly working on those, but as far as like recovering from this severe depression goes, I very much believe I am as good as I'm going to get, you know, and, and I have to pay attention to how far I have come. I have to look at that level of progress and be like, okay, well, where did I start? I, you know, I was unemployed because I couldn't get out of bed and go to a job every day. Like it was just, so I have to look at that level of progress and I know there is a narrative in the world of like, well, you can recover, you can cure it, you can get better, you can this and that and everything else. I personally have the same beliefs you do. I don't believe you can. I don't believe I will ever go back to the person I was before I experienced this. And so, you know, in that sense, my goal and my process is very much identifying how to live well with it. I don't believe it's ever going to be completely gone. And it's like how how to live well with it, how to make the most of it, how to, you know, what are like, I guess to turn this, to turn this into a question, what are some of the key things that you would say someone who lives with depression, someone who lives with trauma and you can identify it will never be 100% cured. What are some of the things they can do to live a full, rich, fulfilling life? Um, And I love the like tangible, tangible practices that you shared as far as like, what's the next thing and, and the tactile things. And if there are some, some keys you can share with the audience of just like, this is, you know, a few things you can do to improve your life living with depression. What, what would those be? For me, a lot of the skills is, and especially because I am holistic, mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. And so everything I I address with my clients, with my own life, um, comes from that model. This spirit side is you can people can define that however they'd like. For some people, that's a religious practice or spiritual practice. For other people, that's being out in nature. Um, for me, that looks like hot yoga, mm-hmm. right? I have a mindfulness um breath work practice and and that's taps into that spirit piece for me personally so that that idea of spirit can be defined in so many different ways it absolutely matters that we tap into that and so that's one actionable thing so for any of the listeners right you're trying to figure out how do i how do i move into recovery how do i start healing how do i live with this and live well part of it is defining what what spirit looks like for you and how are you going to bring that into your everyday? Um, I started with, with uh, gratitude practice. Um, that's a, there's a lot of research, actually very important empirical research about joy and gratitude. A lot of it has been done with the Dalai Lamas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really reading that work and saying, okay, that resonated. And I started with just writing down 
in the morning, three things that I was grateful for. And when I couldn't think about anything, because it, it was usually my children are number one. And mm-hmm. then after that, sometimes I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's big, right. That's a, so, you know, my, my therapist, right. Would say, well, where do you like, tell me the little things that you're grateful for. And I'm like, well, it's not raining today. She's like, write it down. And I'm like, well, I had ice cream and I didn't have a full on, you know, ED episode after it. She's like, write it down. Yeah, right. And, yep. and it started with something that seems so trite and ridiculous, but I was so stuck. It was the little teeny tiny things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody had asked me to make a list of 50 things I'm grateful for, I probably would have had an anxiety. L- literally, and I'm not being hyperbolic. Like it was at that point in time was so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And then I got to a point where um, writing three things down in the beginning of every day was easy. And then I'm like, well, can I write three things down at the end of the day? And then for a while, that was way too overwhelming. Yeah. So I started with my clients, like little teeny tiny, what I call micro self-care, little things that you can implement every day. It doesn't have to be go to the gym for an hour and work out. Most of us do not have the time, energy, desire, care to even do that anymore, right? Absolutely. But we can walk around the block when we're a little stressed out. Mm -hmm. We can't get up and stretch, Mm -hmm. you know, take two minutes, right? Get up, walk around. Um, Yeah. So starting very small creates success. I so- love that micro self-care. That is, that's fantastic. Um, I remember when I first started, one of my gratitudes would be like, my favorite coffee mug is clean this morning, you know? Yes. Yes, exactly. Because if if I say, hey, I want you to, you know, I want you to journal for 30 minutes about why you feel grateful today and you're not having a depressive episode, you're like, well, I don't know if I like journal right No, but I mean, y- you know, it, that doesn't sound super scary or overwhelming, right? Mm-hmm. You might go, well, I don't know if I can do 30 minutes, but I could probably 15 or 20. Yeah. But when you're in the middle of a depressive episode. You're like, um, I don't know where there's a pen. And I don't care. And I don't care. Yeah. And it's not going to help. Yeah. Right? Um, feel better. Yeah. That takes me back because I, when I first like, and I'm going to get into the audience questions because I'm, I could just talk to you forever. Um, when I was first kind of getting into recovery, I remember my, my first thing, my first micro self care was just brushing my teeth, you know, and it started as once a day. Um, it was very much like a, I laid a towel next to the sink. I placed my toothbrush, placed the toothpaste. I made it as easy as possible and tried to set myself up for success, but that was it. It was just brush your teeth once a day. Maybe next week, a couple weeks from now, we can try it twice a day. Like I think that, and that's something that I talk about a lot is just like starting as small as possible and, and having those, having those small victories. Like I learned oddly that, you know, for a long time I thought, well, when I feel better, I'm going to take better care of myself. And it, it actually was the opposite. When I started taking better care of myself, I started feeling better. I started feeling worth caring for. I started feeling, um, yeah, I started feeling worth caring for. I started having a little bit more self-worth. I started, you know, feeling like I was doing something productive with myself and having even this teeny tiny sense of accomplishment is huge when you just have nothing to hang on to. Exactly. And so it's, you know, we talked about the the spirit part, right? Of finding something, that little teeny tiny thing and, and setting yourself up for success. If you can do it once. So a lot of times when, when clients come in and, and they're new clients for, for with me, for example, mm-hmm. um, I'll say, okay, I want you to try brushing your teeth. And here's the thing, you can't fail at it because mm-hmm. right now you're not doing it at all. So mm-hmm. I'm going to see you in seven days from now in a week. And if you did not brush your teeth at all, you're right, you're right right where you started, whatever sky does not fall promise promise the sky's not going to fall. If you do it once in the seven days, you've won. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. And when, when we give ourselves permission like that, chances are we'll do it a few times. We may not do it every day yet. Chances are we'll do it maybe two or three times. Mm -hmm. What people come in and say is, I brushed my teeth three times. Now they weren't brushing their teeth at all. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is huge. 10 gold stars, get up, do the happy dance. And they're like, but I didn't do it every day. 
Uh, yeah. We just want to find reasons to beat the shit out of ourselves. Right. And that hustle culture and that perfection, all, the, all of it, just like there it all is. Right. Well, I did it once, but I didn't do it. But there's six days I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And remember, we said one time is a wit. Like, so it's really getting out of that mindset. Hey, guys, Amanda here. I hope you're loving this incredible conversation with trauma expert Joelle Miletus and taking as much value away from it as I took away while recording it. Um, Joelle and I had an amazing conversation so amazing that it lasted way longer than I planned. And I had to split this episode into two parts. I know that can be such a bummer when you are really enjoying a podcast episode, but I also hope it gives you a little bit of time to marinate on all the incredible knowledge Joelle is sharing with us. If you want to learn more about Joelle's work in the meantime, you can find all her links in the show notes. And I am also excited to share that if you reach out to Joelle or her team via email or a social media DM and mention you heard this podcast episode, Joelle has a special gift just for my listeners. Thank you again for sharing this time with us. Um, Stay tuned for part two, where we will talk about self-worth, the power of gratitude and gratitude lists, uh, what to look for when you're in the market for a new therapist, how EMDR works, how big the impact of pet loss can be. And Joelle also answers audience questions about anticipatory grief, ADHD, and so much more. Thank you again for spending this time with us and stay tuned for part two. Hi, it's Amanda. If you're loving this podcast, please be sure to go over to your podcast app and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you feel called, don't forget to rate, review, and share this episode and tag me on Instagram at Amanda Gist. I'd love to know how this episode served you. Thank you so much for listening to Live Well with Depression. I'll see you in the next episode.